and thank you ever so much for your prayers. Our gospel lesson is found in Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 5. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, As for these things that you see, the day will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will this be, and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, Beware that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name and say, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go with them. When you hear of wars and insurrection, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. But before all of this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and to prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. Let's pray. Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts. O Lord, our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Carolyn Jones has written a tribute to nurses in which she realizes that patients will not forget their doctor's names, but on occasion they do forget the nurses. She remembers one pointedly. She had had breast cancer a few years ago, managed to get through the surgery and the healing process okay, and up until then she had been able to kind of hide what was going on. Everybody didn't really know, and she could walk her daughter to school, she could go out to dinner with her husband. She said, I could fool people. But then chemo was scheduled, and it terrified her. The chemo would be taking every hair off of her body. And so when the day came to start chemotherapy, she was an emotional wreck. Her nurse, Joanne, walked into the door, 
And Carolyn said with everything in her body, she wanted to run. And then Joanne said this, where'd you get your highlights done? She said, what? Hair, really? And with a softness in her eyes and in her voice, Joanne said, it's gonna grow back. It was in that moment, she said, that she realized something she had overlooked. That this was a point in her life that was challenging, but life would get back to normal. Joanne believed it. So do I. I was okay until Pastor Bob asked you to pray. <laughs> the scene this morning takes place in the temple. Apparently, some of those listening to Jesus are enamored by the temple's absolute stunning beauty of the kind of gifts that are rolling in with such extravagance. After all, the Ark of the Covenant is right there. God lives in this place. It's a big deal. And Jesus comes out and says, condemned property. Here he is. Imagine their shock, their absolute wonder. This is not a mistake, though. You see, the destruction of the temple is going to occur seven years after its 83-year construction and expansion. The people of Israel are going to experience this as cataclysmic. The end of the temple is something close to the end of their world. Beautiful and strong and stabilizing one day and the next, it's gone. How could that be? And if that weren't enough, Jesus starts to recite a litany of the horrors the disciples are going to experience. War, insurrection, earthquake, famine, plague, you name it. And that's just the beginning. Jesus makes it clear that these are disorienting, fear and dismay producing, overwhelmingly distracting events, and they are to be expected. And when they do, the disciples are going to be tempted to forget who they are and whose they are. There's a great deal at stake. How the disciples face this chaotic world and live into the gospel at the same time is critical. Jesus must teach and show his disciples the most important truth of our faith. 
God's got this. God has not abandoned us in the chaos. God isn't leaving when the times get tough. God is right here, never left. Don't be terrified. God's got this. The gift of our text this morning is to remind us that all perspective in any given moment is by nature a limited one. We know that. And yet, don't we continue to read the events of the day through a lens of increasing despair and imminent disaster? Faith becomes something we fall back on, not where we start. As a result, whether the challenges are political, economic, social, or religious, we hunker down in protectionist mode, remembering a better past and despairing of a decaying future. Our temptation is to be deceived by alternative saviors or strategies. Who or what is going to get us out of this? What our scripture affirms today is that there is no human solution, nor are there answers to the giant questions of life. There's no time frame knowable. We don't set God's clock. That said, the hand of God is not hidden, nor is God's voice silent. God is creating still. Jesus continues to show us the way, and the Holy Spirit breathes and moves among us. Our scripture invites us to view the events of the world through the eyes of Jesus, a world, by the way, that God has never ceased to love. And you and I aren't spectators in this drama. We are disciples invited to see and participate in God's saving activity. Jesus' words would have us realize that there's nothing at all new about this groaning world. Just another phase in our flawed human history. The real question, the real question, is how will we handle it? Luke offers wisdom this morning on how we live in the face of apparent doom. We are to wait, to testify, and to endure. So what does it mean to wait? Jesus is preparing his disciples for a marked and significant shift in Israel's history as they have known it. Once the temple is destroyed and the people of Israel are scattered, a shift is going to occur. The priests that once used to manage all the worship in the temple are going to be replaced by rabbis on the move with God's people. And Jesus' followers will emerge as the becoming body of Christ. The Christian church is going to take shape, and not many days will pass before Jesus leaves them. 
And his followers have got to be clear because the living expression of God's presence will continue to reside within them. All of these struggles and catastrophic events are not the point. God's saving, loving, continuing activity is. And Jesus says, wait. So why wait? Because it is easier to believe that the distraction and chaos we live in is a giant hoax designed to mess with us than it is to believe that we can trust God at God's word. We wait because faith must become an inside job. We cannot let our anxiety get the better of us. God's kingdom is not about bricks and mortar and buildings and institutions where moth and rust consume and thieves break in and steal. Jesus assures us that we can trust God when everything appears to be crumbling around us. We're not to read the signs of the times without hope. No event, however overwhelming, senseless, or frustrating, should drive us from our hope in Christ. So stop, he invites us. Stop with a curiosity, hear that word, a curiosity and a confidence, a deep abiding belief that God can and will speak, that a new story is going to emerge. Can we be present to and with Jesus in a dynamic relational exchange in which a new way is revealed? I so appreciate curious, inquiring minds. Does the name Mary Anderson ring a bell? Well, she lived at a time, 1902, and she was visiting New York City. It was cold, wet, snowy day. She was warm inside the streetcar. As she was going on her destination, however, the driver often had to open the window to clean off the excess snow so he could see to drive. And of course, when he opens the window, the cold, wet air comes in and all the passengers were miserable. Now, probably most of those passengers just thought, hmm, this is the way it is fact of life, he's got to open the window to clean it. That's just how it's got to be. Not Mary. Mary thought, what if a driver could actually clean the windshield from the inside so you could stay safe and drive and the passengers would stay warm at the same time? That's when Mary Anderson picked up her sketchbook right there and then and began drawing what would become the world's first windshield wiper. What if we approached things as if we were curious as to how God was going to work things out and that waiting became an incubator 
of thought and hope and prayer. Because when we're there, then it becomes time to testify. Now, we often think of testimony in Scripture as that stuff that's usually reserved. It's the stories that have declared how God brought his people out of slavery into freedom, how God made a way when there was no way, how God acted to save God's people. They're the stories we look back on and remember of God's faithfulness. In this instance, however, these peculiar words of Jesus tell the disciples that in their experienced distress, betrayal, loss, and conflict, they are to see it as an opportunity to bear witness. What's surprising about this opportunity to testify is that Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that their testimony cannot be rehearsed or canned, as it were. Instead, they should rely on the incontestable wisdom that's going to be given them in the moment. Luke implies that these opportunities to testify will emerge in the midst of the struggle and they're to muster the audacity and courage of faith to speak with compassion and boldness in the face of suffering. In short, Jesus is giving them charge of changing the future. Their witness of faith is going to change the story. It's going to rewrite the transcript. And the question is, well, just how do you do that? I have wondered in this past week if Jesus asked us to be quiet in that inside job and is working more at the witness of who we are who we are becoming more about the right presence than about the right words. What if the way we are in a situation is testimony courageous and audacious enough? Now, you might think I've lost my mind with this next story, and that's quite possible. In the late 70s, Dr. Robert Neerum and his team rather, designed a rather straightforward experiment to clarify the relationship between diet and health. They took a group of nearly genetically identical rabbits, yes, I said rabbits, and fed them a high-fat diet. At the end of the study, they expected the rabbits to have equally poor health outcomes. Only they didn't. Not only they, did they not, the results were significantly better in 60% of them. How could that be? There was no explanation they could come up with in the difference. Then Dr. Neerum looked at the healthier rabbits and saw that they were tended by the same 
kind and generous young researcher. She held the rabbits, she talked to them, she played with them. In other words, she was kind. A radical idea emerged out of that experiment. Could the world actually change? Could biology change? Could the story change if we changed in our witness around us? If kindness makes a difference in a rabbit, imagine what it would do to change the context of the world in which we live. It is no small miracle. What if the instruction is not to prepare to, to lay out the greatest weight on how we present ourselves in the moment, what if it's about being instead of so much saying? God has to give us the heart before I'm convinced we will have the words. And endurance is the charge. What do we do? We endure. We hang in there. We stay the course. We tough it out. And that's not always easy. In Luke's account, not only were there wars, insurrection, earthquake, famine, plagues, he says, then it's going to get personal. You will be arrested. You will be persecuted. You will be thrown in prison and hauled before the authorities. And then Jesus says, then you'll have them right where you want them. Now they're going to have to listen to you. In other words, endurance in Jesus' mind sets the stage for God's script to be read, for God's purposes for, to be known. Endurance produces the opportune time. These dramatic moments of turmoil, Jesus suggests, are going to happen. And when they do, they will set the stage for the great drama of God's truth to be witnessed and experienced. Not only does struggle set the stage, the waiting prepares the witness. Then the witness that we are, our way of doing and being, proclaims the gospel. And the truth is, Endurance in those moments saves souls. I'm reminded of Martin Luther King Jr.'s Christmas Eve sermon on peace in 1967. He says this, I've seen too much hate to want to hate myself. And every time I see it, I say to myself, Hate is too great a burden to bear. Somehow, we must be able to stand up against our most bitter opponents and say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. 
Do to us what you will, and we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we'll win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I would dare say that we can give thanks in this and any or every day. Because this is God's story. God's story with God's people, and God has got this. God's got us. Our greatest gift is to believe it in our waiting, in our witness, and in our endurance in which God will be revealed. God's got this. I want to close with a quick story I read this week. Jenny Stefani was married not so long ago, and it was a bittersweet day for her. Ten years earlier, her father was murdered. And the heart that he had was given to a man in Pennsylvania. She invited him to walk her down the aisle. The picture in the article showed her hand on his heart. Her father's murder in the wedding happened within three-block radius in a small town called Swissvale, Pennsylvania, where Jenny was an elementary school teacher. As she was about to board the plane for her honeymoon, she said, I was just thinking, my dad is here with us. And this man is here with us because of us. She took a moment. She had waited 10 years. She had endured. And yet would witness the power of God's presence in her life. You will too. Amen. Would you rise for our closing hymn?